Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We're going to wrap up, we'll sort of review, because we didn't quite finish up conceptually, about the placement of the psalm for Thursday, which is on page... 30 in the Sim Shalom, page 89 in the Slim. And then today we're going to do the Psalm for Friday, which is a short Psalm. So I think we should be able to do all of it. I need to finish about 20 of today. Um, and I think moving forward, we will not, unless there's a groundswell of opposition, which I'm open to, we'll vote right now. I was not planning on going on and doing the Psalm for Shabbat. Because on the one hand, that's part of the weekly cycle of Psalms. On the other hand, it's not part of the weekday Sidur. Show of hands, how many people feel like, yeah, 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 we really ought to do the Psalm for Shabbat. Raise your hand now or forever hold your peace. Okay, we're not going to do the Psalm for Shabbat. I'm going to go according to what I anticipated. We're going to move on to talk about Kaddish next week. God willing, Kaddish and then the various Kaddishes and Mourner's Kaddish. And then we'll sort of shift around to something else. We're not going to do, we could do the Psalm for Rosh Chodesh, but we're not going to do that because the Psalm for Rosh Chodesh is pretty straightforward. It's a beautiful Psalm about Hashem as God of nature and it's really long. So um, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's beautiful and magnificent, especially because of the Hebrew. I'm not sure that it requires um, a class to understand it. It's pretty straightforward. It's just a nature Psalm. Um so is that okay with you, Michael? I mean, it would take like three sessions and we'd end up saying it's a beautiful psalm about nature, but you can figure that out by reading it yourself. I don't, I don't think anyone needs a class to help with that. That's what I'm saying. Okay. If you need a class for the Hebrew, the class won't help. And I don't think you need a class for the English because it's pretty straightforward conceptually. There's no drama in that psalm other than the drama of the world. Is Manifold and beautiful and proves that God as creator is, uh, complex and wonderful. That's what the Psalm for Rosh Chodesh is about. Okay. So we talked about the Psalm for Thursday. Uh, in a nutshell, just to review the part, first part, which is about one third plus was about praise God. And then the rest of it was because God did all these wonder. I, God, it shifts to the first person. I did all these wonderful things. I got you out of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage. I called out to you and gave you the Ten Commandments from the cloud. I gave you um, water at May Mariva, and all I said was, "Just listen to me and keep me as the only God." Someone, someone needs to mute. Someone who's talking needs to mute. Maybe Larry needs to mute or Bernie. Larry and Bernie, you should mute. Okay, um, you're muted now. Thank you. Um, and I didn't hear. I'm sorry. I was taking care of my granddaughter. What did you ask me? Please mute. Oh, I thought I was muted. Sorry. Thank you. Um, uh, so all I ask you is one thing, one God, and don't worship any other gods. But you messed up, okay? And, you know, if you would only listen, nation, then I would vanquish your enemies in a second. Conclusion, uh, those who hate, uh, th- those who Spurn the Lord will have their day of doom forever, but the good folks, uh, they will be taken care of forever. Okay. So it's, 
it is kind of a complicated psalm. There's no personal or internal drama, as there is with some other psalms. There's a drama between Hashem and B'nai Israel. Okay, so that's where we got to last week, what we did not do. Hi, Millie. What we did not talk about is um, why is this the psalm for Thursday? So any thoughts about why this could be the psalm for Thursday? be a hard one to guess. Well, the Talmud, which gives the reason for all the Psalms, says this is the Psalm for Thursday because on Thursday, God created most of the animals. Well, not, sorry, the, the water animal, the water creatures and the air creatures, the fish and the birds, meaning God started to create the animal kingdom. And when we look, we, Michael, this relates to the Psalm for Rosh Chodesh. And when we humans look at the animal kingdom, we are filled with awe at Hashem's um, creative power. And this causes us to say, We really should praise God, okay? Because God has done such amazing things. So, wow. kind of a stretch. But that's what the Talmud says. That's the way the Talmud, in other words, in other words, the Talmud in the passage about why, again, remember, the Mishnah tells us, the Mishnah from the year 200 of the Common Era, says, these are the Psalms that the Levites recited in the temple every day, which means by rabbinic times, they have inherited that this, these are the daily Psalms. So they're stuck with it, as it were. They don't get a free hand to choose which is the best Psalm that has something to do with the fish and the birds. All right. They inherited it. We don't know how or why they selected. The Talmud, ex post facto, hundreds of years later, tries to come up with a theory or says a theory about why each psalm is stuck, is attached to each day. And this is the reason they give. Because when you look at God's manifold creations, um, creatures, it causes you to say, wow, praise God, we should be, you know, banging the tambourine and playing the lyre and um, singing and shouting in praise of God. That's why it's the Psalm for Thursday, um, according to the Talmud. Okay. Uh, we've also gone on a second track. We've talked about, is there somehow a thread or a storyline through the Psalms of the week, right? Let's so Let's talk about that. That's not in the Talmud. That's just us trying to figure it out. So Sunday, as we emerge from Shabbat, cleansed and purified, we talk about who is the individual who can come to God's Beit HaMikdash and worship. He that hath, he or she, uh, the Psalm says he, but one who has clean hands and a pure heart. So we're emerging from Shabbos and we say, I want to continue to be a righteous person on Sunday. On Monday, we talk about the righteous city, Jerusalem. Right. Another way of looking at that is the righteous society. Right. Characterized by, uh, tzedek, mishpat. It's the godly city characterized by tzedek, mishpat, and chesed. Tuesday, some of that sense of, uh, moral security. I'm going to put it that way. Um, starts to crumble. We say, I look at the council of the gods. If you're a literalist. Or at the council of the mighty, if you are from. Um, and I see all those that I thought that I could count on 
to, you know, defend the importance of the judiciary, to use a contemporary example. Um, you can't count on any of them to do justice and righteousness. The only one you can count on is God, right? So that tzedek and mishpat that we talked about on Monday, actually the only source of real tzedek and mishpat is God. You can't rely on those other forces, we say on Tuesday. On Wednesday, which is the day, the point in the week, which is furthest away from Shabbos, either the Shabbat before or the Shabbat following, we hit kind of a nadir, N-A-T-I-R, low point, right? There's all these evildoers, and who's going to save me against all of these evildoers? So it's more pessimistic than Tuesday. Who's going to say, you know, if God did not stand up with me, these evildoers, they would just, you know, I would be destroyed. Or perhaps more humanistic interpretation, I need to stand up against the evildoers and who is going to help me? Only God is available to help me. Okay. So that's the Psalm for Wednesday. Now we get to Thursday. So how would you link the Psalm for Thursday to that sequence? We're hypothesizing, we're either hypothesizing or we're inventing that there is a, a, a series, a train of thought that runs through the Shir Shalyom of the week. So how would you link Thursday? Michael B., you're raising your hand. Hi, everyone. Um, I, I've always thought of this psalm as one that um, talks about human free will. That, you know, God did all these things for us, gave us all these um, opportunities, um, proved himself over and over, and then talks about free will, that we rejected God. Okay. Um, but that we don't have to reject God. We can choose to um, to follow him. So in, in your path across the week, we're now talking, you know, fully about humans after you know, after Wednesday, that, you know, we have free will and we can change our minds. Good. Nice sequence. So they're all, Wednesday, there are all these evildoers. Who's going to rise up against the evildoers? Who's going to help me? Thursday, hey, God gives us the options, okay? Uh, God said, this is all I want, I, I'm asking from you, right, is to not worship other gods. Uh, the implication is ancestors went astray. It's easy for us to make a different choice. So it's about human free will. I like that. Thank you. Other thoughts? Michael H. Yes, it's also kind of a blueprint for how we, how we, uh, cause God to, to do what we want, to yep. rise up against evildoers. Tells us what we have to do in order to accomplish that. Yes. And by the way, and it's pretty simple. It alludes to the Ten Commandments by saying God spoke to us out of the thunder. But then it only focuses on one commandment. That's it. I only asked one thing of you, God seems to be saying. Okay? Um, of course, we assume this one thing is kind of representative or you know, leads to other things, but just one thing, and you can choose to do that, according to Michael B. Good. Other thoughts? No, the, I, I, this is not a, I'm not playing, you know, can you guess what I'm thinking? It's, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's interesting how unobvious this is, by the way. I don't know. I'm, I'm just guessing if I, if I said to you, here's your assignment. Read through the entire 150 chapter book of Psalms and please come up with the Psalms for the seven days of the week. 
I'm not sure that this is what you would come up with, right? So it's really not obvious and it's left to us to kind of sort it out. And transitioning to the Psalm for Friday, if people recognize the right path, God's sovereignty, and make the right choice, then what will happen? Then God reigns supreme. Or, of course, no matter what choice people make, ultimately God is the one who reigns supreme. So as we're heading into towards Shabbat, we have this kind of, uh, you could call it a coronation psalm. It's about Hashem's coronation. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at, Psalm 93, um, which, interestingly, frequently follows um, Psalm 92, right? Like on Friday night. And here it's given the reverse sequence, of course, because it's not Shabbat. It's only Friday. So, uh, I'm on page 32 or 90, 90 in the slim, 32 in the sim, or whatever page in here, Sidur. Sidur. Adonai Malach Geut Lavesh, Lavesh Adonai Ozhi Tazar, Aftikon Tevel Baltimot. Hashem reigns or is enthroned, and God wears Geut, which is kind of an abstract noun. It means something like pride or majesty or splendor. If we were talking about a human king, we would say, you know, velvet or ermine or, you know, whatever it is, whatever Henry VIII is wearing in all those portraits, okay? But we would expect the king at the moment of enthronement or when when sitting on the throne to be wearing something extremely kingly that other people do not wear. So, of course, because God is depicted abstractly, notice it's not totally abstract, because there's going to be a a chair, a throne, right? So we're sort of toggling here. We imagine God is a king on a throne, but of course we can't say God wears fancy robes. So we say geut, splendor, which is, I don't know, it's a reasonable English um, term, um, which re- really it means pride, something magnificent, magnificence, right? God reigns robed in magnificence. Lavesh Hashem oz hitazar. We have an odd sentence. God wears, he is girded with might, right? Hitazar usually means to gird up. It's usually used of girding up your loins. Okay. So again, another word for dressed. So oz parallel to geyut, two abstract kinds of words, because we can't have the chutzpah to say, God is in, uh, is dressed in a magnificent robe. So we say God is dressed in splendor and might. Indeed, the earth is established and it does not totter. T-O-T-T-E-R. Okay. Uh, that's what, um, that's what Timot is. We, we have it here in our English translation only, um, in positive, we have sure foundation and stands firm. What do we have in this one? Yeah, both both editions have the same translation. Um, but I want to point out that in the Hebrew, 
We don't have two positives. We have a positive description and then a negative description. Tikkun means it, it is established or sits firmly. And then Baal Timot, Baal is a fancy word for lest or not. We're saying it does not totter, quaver, something like that. Meaning shake. That'd be a simple English word, right? The earth is established firm. It does not shake. So this seems to be referring to what or what point in time we imagine it metaphorically as a point in time. After creation is completed. Yeah. What happens when creation is completed? What happens when all the work of the kingdom is done? The king goes and sits on the king's throne and, uh, you know, is majestic. Right. The king isn't going out and doing stuff anymore. The king is just worshipped, right, enthroned and worshipped. So the end of the stuff here is the earth being firmly established, perhaps a metaphor for creation is complete, which is an obvious link to Friday. Okay. Or sorry, the, the fifth day, the sixth day of creation. Um. By the way, the Talmud's explanation is because that's the day on which humans were created and humans are the ones who worship God as sovereign. That's the Talmud's link. Okay. Concrete link to six day. Nachon az me'olam ata. Your chair, your throne was established. By the way, it's Nachon and Tikon, I believe, are from the same Hebrew root, which is Kaf Vav Nun or Kaf Nun Nun, which means to sort of establish, okay, or, you know, establish strongly. We, I'm, I'm not sure we have a, I can't think of a good English word for it. It's not like, you know, I established my corporation. It's established something, you know, physical and strong and concrete. Um, so your throne was established long ago from eternity. Are you okay? And of course, eternity stretches out, uh, or we could say may Oz long ago is backwards in time and may Olam is forwards in time. Although if it was really that, it would probably say, what would it say instead of may Olam? Adolam. Adol or, or le Olam. Nachon kisacha may Oz, le Olam ata. That would be a nice simple sentence, right? That, that, you know. Maimonides would like you, you were backwards eternally in time and you were forwards eternally in time, but that's not quite what it says. It may actually really be not opposites, but parallel may actually really mean your throne was established long ago. Yay. You were even from eternity back there in time, infinite time backwards. Okay. Um, Again, we have the translation of he is eternal, which makes it sound sort of static and really avoids the question. But I do want to say it is may olam from eternal time. And I'm reminding people that olam in modern Hebrew means world. It means infinity in space. But in biblical Hebrew, olam means infinity in time, not in space. It does not mean the world or the universe. It means forever. Okay. Nasu naharot Adonai, Nasu naharot Kolam, Yisu naharot Tochyam. Obviously very 
poetic three phrases with the nasu and the, right? The rivers lift up Hashem. The rivers lift up their voice. The rivers may, okay, because the verb changes, so we can't say lift up again. Our translation says may. And dochyam is a rare word, which seems to mean noise. Here we have, um, because our English translator wanted to make it much more complex than the simple Hebrew, <laughs> um, our English translator made it, the rivers may rise and rage, the rivers may pound and roar, the floods may spread and storm. Okay, but but it doesn't actually mean that. It just means the rivers lift up or lifted up Hashem. The rivers lifted up their voice. The rivers will may lift up their loud sound. Okay, Larry, what does this refer to? We discussed this in the past. I don't recall. I'm sorry. Okay, because you're. Enamored of your beautiful granddaughter. Yeah. Okay. Is, is this part of the separation of the world, Avi, which is the, the dividing the waters to have the fruit above the waters and below the waters? And, and when we read that in Brashi chapter one, Alan, was there any roaring or the other? By the way, the waters are complete. The defining of the waters is complete is day three, right? Confining them to where they are on earth, but there was no roaring. Yeah. So, um, what we mentioned in the past was in uh, throughout the poetic material in the Tanakh, Psalms in particular, and some in Job, okay, there's a residue of poetry of there's a great conflict between God and the waters. The waters are rebellious. They rage and roar. And they try to fight against God. They rebel against God. They threaten to cover the earth and God fights them back, is victorious and sends them to jail. Mm-hmm. Jail means you're going to be in a pond and you can't leave the pond. You're in the river and you stay in the river. The oceans are where they are. They don't come in onto the land. Okay. Uh, that's day three. Day two is half the water. You're going to stay up there above the firmament. Half the water, you're going to be below ground and come up from there. So in Breshi chapter one, we have a very bloodless, denatured, abstract version of God limiting the waters. There's no battle because for that, the, because for the author of that chapter, the idea of God needing to fight against the waters and the waters rebelling would be, that idea would be anathema. But we see in the poetic material in the Tanakh, throughout Psalms, and we assume that this is an earlier idea that maybe comes from not yet entirely monotheistic poetry, I will call it that, ancient not yet monotheistic poetry, either Israelite or inherited from the Canaanites, Right. Because uh, we know that there is Canaanite poetry that talks about the battle that rages between God and the watery deep and and God needs to subdue the waters. Bab- the Babylonian creation epic also has a story of God needing to subdue the a God needing to subdue the waters. So we inherit that in the poetry. It's unclear to me 
what the poet actually believed, meaning, oh, does the poet believe this? Or is the poet just using metaphor? I don't know. Um, and the hearer is, does the hearer believe this? The audience, whoever they are, people in the temple or Levites singing the psalm, um, do they believe it literally? Do they just take it as an me- ancient metaphor? Are they thinking about what the words mean? I don't know. The answer probably, like a lot of things, is maybe different people in different times and eras understood this differently. But the metaphor is, the, I don't want to say the metaphor, the image is the water's roaring. By the way, just to finish the thought so that you know that there is, in fact, a conflict. Mi kolot maim rabim adiri mishpereyam adir bamarom adonai. Mi, it means from or above, right? But louder than those mighty waters, the breakers of the sea, is Hashem is adir. So adir, which means, I don't know, magnificent. What do we have? Uh, Supreme. All right. Okay. Awesome. So here we have a difference. One translation is supreme. The other one is awesome. So those waters, I don't know if you've ever been at Niagara Falls, let us say. It's pretty impressive. It's loud. It's awesome. Okay. Yet God enthroned on the throne is more awesome. Those Mayim are Adirim, but Hashem is Adir May Mem them. Okay. Mi kolot maim rabim. So this is poetic. So it's in reverse order. You could, what if we, if I translate it into, if we sw- transpose it into prose, it would be bamarom Hashem adir mi kolot maim rabim adirim. Right? In the heavens, God is more magnificent than those magnificent noisy waters. Right. So here's where we see, yeah, there is a conflict. So the waters are roaring, but God doesn't say God roars louder. They are roaring. They are adir, whatever that means. But God is more adir. God bamarom in the heavens. This takes us back to the scene of the throne. Okay. So God is enthroned. God is in on the heavens. The waters are magnificent, impressive. God is more magnificent. God rules totally. Does everyone follow the, I want to make sure you follow the sequence there. Okay. Hold on, hold on to the questions for a moment. And then we have the little halachic two step. It's not really halachic, right? Proto halachic. Um, so I'm talking about God is magnificent. So then what do you think you'd want to you know, if you were seeing the king and the king's magnificence, I don't know, you might want to talk about how powerful the king was or how magnificent it was, but what does it actually go to? What's important about the king for us in the last line? This is not a trick question. He what never is, fails. What is our relationship to the king? Adotecha, right? Your statutes, your orders, okay? Your decrees never fail, okay, right? So this could be about God's power. Whatever the king 
decrees happens, which would make it very nice to fit in with the six days of creation. But of course, what does a dot also commonly mean in the Torah, for example? Larry, unmute. Witness. Witnesses. Yeah, it doesn't really mean that in the Torah. No. When God says, Adar groups. It means mitzvahs. Keep my Adot v'hachukim v'amishpatim. On that day, your son will ask you, Ma ha'edot v'hachukim v'amishpatim asher tzivanu Hashem al-keinu. Right? About Pesach. In the, in the, take it into the God. On that day, your child is going to ask you, what are the Adot, Chukim, and Mishpatim? What are the statutes? I don't know, you have to make them three different words in English. What are the statutes, laws, and commands which God has enjoined upon us, right? So in Torah literature, certainly in Sefer Dvarim and in Shemot, Adot means mitzvot. It's a parallel word, okay? So on the we have here, on the one hand, on the one hand, this is, so I think this is an intentionally ambiguous term. It can be understood different ways. On the one hand, the king is enthroned. What does the king do? Issue decrees, right? The king decrees. It, and this represents the king's absolute power. All right. Like the king says, Hey, waters, you stay in your pond over there. Don't come out, right? It's the way that Hashem creates in Brashi chapter one. God does not do any battle. God just says, Yehi, let there be. Water, you go over there. God doesn't put the water over there in any sense of the word put. God commands and it is done. Okay? So on the one hand, it means God's uh, edicts. On the other hand, this is the ambiguity. What are God's edicts for us? For us, God's edicts are the mitzvot. Okay? So we have a link here between... You can call it the creator aspect of God and the law ordaining, the the, uh, uh, the commanding, law commanding aspect of God. Okay? So, your adot, statute, decrees, is a good, decrees is a good enough ambiguous word because it covers the king on the king's throne and it could mean mitzvot, right? So, your decrees are unfailing or something like that. Um, Kodesh, Holiness is appropriate for your house, O oh God, forever. What is your house? What is God's house? Where does God live? Do we know God's address? The temple. Right. If anything, the Beit HaMikdash. So we have kind of a link here between, on some poetic level, God being enshrined Bamarom, right in the heavens, Okay, your chair is established up there. Okay, but somehow it is also down here at the temple. Okay, so perhaps in this sentence, both with a dot and betcha, the poet is making a transition between the up there, God is mighty, majesty, etc., and all that, and us down here. What do we have down here? We have your bayit and your adot. That is our link to God. Okay. We human Jewish creatures. Okay. But we link it to eternity. Just as we said, God was me'az and me'olam. That's the past eternity. 
the future eternity we look to is the Orech Yamim of your Bayit, your temple. So this is, you know, your statutes are, they never fail. Holiness befits your house forever and ever. Orech Yamim is like Le'olam Va'ed, sort of. Okay, pause. Question, comment. I have, Avi. Alan, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, I just have one just Hebrew question. Why is it Natsunorot, Natsunorot, and then changes to Yisunorot? I don't know. It's just poetic, because it would be boring to say it the same way three times. I mean, surely there's a scholar of Psalms who would give you a more sophisticated answer than the one I just gave you, right? Right. It's the, they, <laughs> it's, the the rivers lift up, O oh God, the rivers lift up their voice. Let the rivers shout as much as make as much noise as they want, because you are more a dear than they are. Hmm. That's my try at translating the shift to Yisu. Let them. Or in English here, the floods may swirl and storm. They may thunder, but you are more a dear. You're a root is greater than their Adirut. It's poetic. I don't know. And, and, you know, you'd have to know some, some, I'm sure some scholar of biblical poetry would say more and have a name for this type of shift of verb, but I don't know that. It's above my pay grade. Autocorrect. Other, other, uh, right. Other question. No, not autocorrect, by the way. Uh, you know, if you said, oh, it should be Nasu and it's a scribal mistake, da, 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 da. There's a principle in Bible scholarship of lectio difficilior, which means um, the the harder reading is probably more correct. If you found some manuscript that said nasu and you said, "Oh, in our Masoretic text, um, uh, it's a it's a mistake." The nun changed into a yud. Uh, a modern Bible scholar would say, "No, no, no. We accept the more difficult reading as the more likely. We can understand very easily." Why some scribe would change it from Yisu to Nasu, right? Because they were thinking like Alan, they would just say, ah, oh, I don't know, what's the difference? Right? It's much harder to explain why someone would change it from Nasu to Yisu. Therefore, because it's harder to explain that, Yisu is probably the original correct version. If you didn't follow that, never mind. I'm not going to. Okay. Um, other thoughts, questions, comments? Larry? Just a brief thought. I became aware of this psalm and the psalm for the day when, um, when I was davening in Tel Aviv uh-huh. on my way to work every morning. And the week for me um, was like rivers rising and raging. So uh-huh. I always saw the psalm for me as being talking about the, the turbulence of the week between Shabbat and Shabbat. And then I would daven on Friday back home in Jerusalem where I wasn't actually driving to Tel Aviv because that uh-huh. was a day off. Yep. So for me, I'm not saying that the, uh, that the author actually intended this. For me, it was the perfect psalm to explain the, um, the pace of the week for me. And I was having refuge <clears throat> with uh, the holiness of God on the weekend. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. If I can sort of generalize from that to get again back to the sequence of the week. Okay. Tuesday, you know, uh, my faith is starting to faith in humanity is starting to totter. It's only God. Wednesday, the nadir of the week. Oh God, all of these evildoers surrounding me. How am I going to survive? 
Thursday, God is saying, you know, free choice. If only you would listen. Okay. There is a sense of, I'm going to say security that leads to serenity of the Friday Psalm of, especially, you know, maybe they were rearing, roaring waters, but Hashem is more a dear than that. Hashem's throne was forever and will be forever above all of that. Right. So it is a Psalm that both, I think, uh, in terms of the, the all, all three, the story of creation in Breshi chapter one and the sequence of Psalms psychologically during the week really leads into Shabbat. Okay. Which is the, the day of, of quiescence and release and enjoyment. And this is the part that leads us into it. Michael B, you want to add? I was just going to say then, um, all those, those people don't listen to God and are, you know, those rulers who are, you know, self-centered, they could also be like the waters, health, you know, raging that they, you know, they can do whatever they want, you know, and try to be, um, you know, in charge of things, but then God is still supreme. Great. So we have, uh, uh, Larry and Michael, uh, sort of, um, using the, the, uh, this, let's say old creation myth. Uh, as a metaphor, okay, for either for the travails of life or the travail creators of life. Good. Thank you. I appreciate that. On that note, we're going to stop. Everyone stay healthy. Be Torah. God willing, we'll meet again next week and we'll start talking about Kaddish, I think. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.